0: Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Cure Insight production, brought to you by CASEL Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. CASEL Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Registration is now open for our 2023 I Believe Survivorship Seminar. This year we'll be coming to you live and virtually from Seattle, Washington. Join Dr. Andrew Stacy top physicians and experts for two days of workshops and educational sessions on living with ocular melanoma. We'll explore the town of course, here there is a dinner cruise planned for Friday night, meet new omis and check in with good friends. And at the end of the weekend, you can plan to end the week on a high note with cocktails and dinner. For those planning to attend in person, we hope to see you at the welcome reception the evening of September 7th, so make sure to plan your travel accordingly. Make sure to reserve your hotel room at the link provided at the time of registration, or you can book at your nearby favorite hotel. If you're unable to attend in, per- in person during registration, simply select the virtual attendance option. If you do plan to attend in person or online, make sure to register using the link in the show notes of each podcast episode or head to www.acureinsight.org education events. After you register, be sure to finalize your travel plans and reserve your room for the hotel nearby. Discounted hotel registration ends on August 17th. Please email contact at with any registration questions. Share the news with your fellow Omis, guys. We can't wait to finally see you in Seattle this year. All right, you guys, welcome to the I Believe podcast. Um, I am here with Dr. Basil Williams from Bascom Palmer Institute in Florida, and we're super happy to have him here with us. You guys have heard him speak before. Um, He's actually, I guess I didn't tell you this, so I'll put you on the spot. We're going to compliment you live on Facebook. Um, But we've had a lot of patients come in and just say that they really appreciated the way that you talk and how you explain things. So we're glad to have you back with us to explain more about prognostic testing for the eye. Uh, So those of you joining us live, tune in, comment where you're from, let us know um, how your day is going. Hopefully you're staying cool and out of the sun as much as you can, because it is hot, at least where I am, it's hot. (laughs) Um, But uh, real quick, by way of announcements, if you haven't seen this yet, it is going to go up on social media later today, we do have an Eye on Research little mini seminar coming up, just like a teaser of um, research presentations and just talking to the different uh, researchers, scientists, doctors who went to ASCO, AACR, ARVO, uh, the various different um, cancer conferences where uveal melanoma has been discussed uh, at thankfully a higher kind of higher percentage of these talks and these presentations um, than previously. So if you want to learn more about the present research and kind of where does uveal melanoma stand in terms of metastatic, in terms of research for the eye, make sure to register with us. Um, you can actually go to tinyurl.com i as in the eyeball. So eye on research number 23. Um, and so if you type that in, you'll be able to research, uh, register today. And then if you see the post on Facebook, make sure to share it with your friends and get registered. It is free. And we are just going to be doing just a short two to two and a half hours just to cover what has been uh, presented on in research. Next up is this next few weekends. And really this next few months, uh, we have some various five K's that are happening. So if you have not joined a looking for a cure team, please do so. Please make a team, even if you are just doing one virtually and help us fundraise for an area, um, a walk in your area for uveal melanoma research. Um, keep in mind, if you don't know this already, that, uh, in each of the local areas that we're going, for example, Palo Alto and Seattle are coming up. Um, Seattle is tomorrow. So register today if you want to go to Seattle. Um, but. Each of the areas are raising funds for um, their local area as well as uveal melanoma research, um, just generally. So half the funds will go directly to the local area where the, the walk is being hosted. For example, um, Fred Hutch Institute and Dr. Stacy in Seattle tomorrow. Um, so have got to have the fundraising efforts happening on your part and your family's part. Just join in, be part of the fun and just be part of the movement to make a huge imprint in uh, the field of uveal melanoma this year. So we have Palo Alto coming up next weekend. Dr. Murthy and Jaya is hosting uh, with Byers Eye Institute and then coming up in August, we've got Philadelphia and oh, New York City, um, Philadelphia, we had to move the date. So just keep that in mind that we are doing that again in the middle or the beginning of August is Philadelphia and New York City. And then I believe in September is Denver, Colorado. Um, at, also in September, <laughs> I know we have lots of things also in September is our, I, um, I believe seminar, and that is happening on September 8th and 9th. If you're joining us virtually, and if you're joining us in person, we hope that you will fly in for the seventh, which is going to be our welcome reception. We're going to have, um, just a good time in the evening to chat, get to know each other. Um, and then the next few days of just chock full of resources that you can use as a new patient, as a seasoned patient, uh, or as a caregiver, if you are one of those people. So thank you again for joining us. And now I'm going to, move on to our uh, discussion for today, which is actually um, brought to you specifically by Castle Biosciences, who's one of our sponsors of the podcast. And they uh, put forth Dr. Basil Williams as the best person to explain prognostic testing for us again. Um, And just to really kind of dive into some of the questions you guys have as a community. So um, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being here on your Friday evening. And we're so glad to have you.
1: Thanks so much uh, for the introduction and for your kind words earlier. I'm obviously blushing. Um, And then (laughs) in in regards to uh, participation, I don't know if I'm the best person uh, to talk about it. There's a number of wonderful ocular oncologists, but I'm happy to, uh, to participate and to join you.
0: Well, thank you so much. So um, we've got, you know, just kind of some various misconceptions that float around in the community, even now, like as we have newer patients who are being diagnosed. Um, so we want to just kind of let's just talk about maybe some of the common fears that patients might have or that doctors um, treating doctors might even have around doing a biopsy. Um, and so I guess maybe we start back with what is a biopsy um, as far as treating the eye and what is the purpose for you as a doctor in doing that biopsy?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, I think that's a great question. And that's obviously a great starting point. So when we think of a biopsy, usually it's a needle-based biopsy. And so we're getting a small sample of the tumor. um, and, And this is obviously in the context of uveal melanoma or presumed uveal melanoma. So we're getting a small sample of the tumor. And most of the time, this is for prognostication, basically for determining the risk of metastatic spread in the future. We also know that sometimes we can use this for Um, diagnostic confirmation, basically meaning to confirm that this is a uveal melanoma by looking at the cells in pathology. But for the most part, it is a clinical diagnosis. And so we usually use the biopsy to determine risk of spread down the road.
0: Okay. So Um, you talked about a fine needle biopsy. Um, So before we, well, I guess let's talk about the mechanisms of like, what does that mean? Um, Because a lot of, um, a lot of the patient community, have been told by doctors or, um, just throughout various different times, you know, we hear it floating around in the cancer community that like, Oh, don't get a biopsy. It's going to make your cancer spread. Can you talk to us about like, how does this biopsy physically work and what are the risks and what are kind of the, the safe features, safety features, I guess, that are kind of a part of the process?
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So when we think about a fine needle, we're really talking about a very, very small gauge needle, um, sometimes 25, 27, or even 30 gauge, depending on uh, which provider is performing the biopsy. So depending on the location of the tumor, uh, the biopsy approach can be different. So if the tumor is closer to the front part of the eye, then sometimes you will go through the wall of the eye directly into the tumor. Um, and that gives a pretty good sample. If the tumor is closer to the back part of the eye, then it's hard to rotate the eye around to get the needle to go directly through the wall of the eye into the tumor. I know I get asked all the time from patients if we remove their eye during the biopsy and things like that. And thankfully, we don't do anything like that. We just kind of rotate the eye as needed. But if the tumor is in the back part of the eye, um, then we have a needle go kind of from the side and it goes through the vitreous cavity, the, through the gel in the middle, and then into the tumor from the inside. And so this is actually quite effective in terms of yielding uh, results for prognostication or, or the understanding the risk of spread in the future higher than 95% in most cases, but that does depend a little bit on the size of the tumor. So the thicker the tumor, the more likely you are to get positive results. Obviously, the pros of this um, is basically to stratify your risk. So basically to determine what chances you have of spread for the future, number one. Number two, to determine how often uh, your body should be checked for metastasis as a result, and number three, to kind of give some guidance a little bit about how you should approach things. And I think patients can find that helpful from an emotional standpoint, um, depending on uh, which uh, stage or which class of tumor um, is diagnosed on the results of the biopsy. From the uh, risks or potential complications of the biopsy, it is theoretically possible to have spread of the tumor, but that is so, so rare. When this technique is done appropriately, it's much, much less than 1%. And actually, if you look at all the reported literature, there are very few cases and you're thinking, you know, these are thousands of biopsies that are done per year. Um, And so the risk is exceedingly low. The most common risk that we see probably is bleeding into the eye from the biopsy. But even with this bleeding, the vast majority of the time, the blood goes away on its own. And so it doesn't require another treatment procedure or surgery um, to clear up the bleeding in most situations. There is also a low risk of retinal detachment, um, which can be surgically repaired. Uh, But again, that is not something uh, that happens that often. Something, you know, depending on uh, which studies, somewhere between 1% and 4% um, can develop that. So in general, I think it is a very safe technique, a safe approach, and it does provide really good information for the patients about the risk of spread for the future.
0: Yeah. And that was actually something I I asked in a a Facebook group today. I just asked, you know, what are some of the things that you wish as a patient you had known about the biopsy ahead of time? Um, and you know, maybe things that you were misinformed about or things that, that were not told to you, or did, you know, did you not have a biopsy for any reason? Um, and just some of the people, some of the people commented, um, well, one of the person's, uh, people, I can't, I can't use the right verbs today. Um, nouns, (laughs) see it's a problem um the most important thing is that it's not just for idle curiosity so like it really is very clinically um sound data and it's data that dr harbour and the kug it was the kug one study is where this came from the castle test um yeah so historically like it has been around for over 10 years now and um Obviously, 10 years ago, the testing was maybe not quite as actri- accurate or it didn't exist in the same way. But having that information now takes you from your doctor has to, because, well, I I guess what I have heard from patients that were diagnosed 15, 20 years ago is that you got this diagnosis and you were told, like, get your affairs in order, whether your tumor was one millimeter thick or 10 millimeters thick. Like, it didn't matter the thickness. Um, everybody just treated it with the most caution possible. And so that you know, in turn meant that everybody's patient had the most stressful situation as far as the emotions of this go as possible. Um, now, we do know just from the data that roughly 50% of the people diagnosed each year are going to be in that class two category. So before we kind of talk about those percentages, you want to just walk us through the classes of like, what are what are the classes, at least in the CASEL um, decision UX uveal melanoma or decision DX uveal melanoma test. Um, yeah,
1: exactly. So I think the main two categories we have are class one versus class two tumors. And class one probably makes up about two-thirds of the tumors that we see. And you know, with the original Kook study that you mentioned, Um, This had about 450, 460 patients in it, and it was evaluated prospectively. And so basically what it showed was that class one tumors had a low likelihood of spread to other parts of the body, whereas class two had a much higher risk of spread to other parts of the body. We then looked uh, with further follow-up at the class 1 lesions, and we saw that there were some class 1 tumors that did end up spreading over time, obviously a much lower percentage than the class 2. And so we tried to kind of help determine which class 1 lesions would be more likely to spread. And so uh, for a while, initially, they were divided into class 1A and class 1B, with class 1B presumably being more likely to spread than class 1A. And I think we are currently evaluating over 2,000 patients with the Coug 2 Coug standing for Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group, Um, over 2,000 patients looking not only at the classes, not only at uh, some of the tumor characteristics in terms of the largest basal diameter and thickness, but also looking at PRAME, um, another marker which we can discuss in a little bit, to kind of help differentiate which tumors are most aggressive and how we can get the most accurate information for our patients about what these test results mean. I apologize, Danae. I don't quite hear you.
0: I muted myself. It's fine. (laughs) Um, So we've got the class one patients that you said make up roughly two thirds of patients diagnosed. So I guess if we put a 3,000 people are diagnosed in the States per year, then that's roughly 2,000 of the people are in that class one category. Um, So... We've talked a little bit about kind of I think we've alluded a little bit to kind of the split between those, but um, we've got patients who are going to come in with a class A, um, 1A or a class 1 B. So can we kind of talk about the difference between those two? Um, and maybe I guess this would be maybe a good time to go into those like percentages and what do those percentages mean um, so that patients, because I know like when I got my diagnosis of class 2, like initially it was terrifying. It was like, oh my word, this is so bad um, which arguably, Could be could be said, but um, let's just kind of break the numbers down so that they're um, understood.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I think, you know, when you're looking at class one, a lesions over about five years, it's about a 2% risk of metastasis or about a 2% risk of spread to other parts of the body. And so obviously that's a fairly low risk. As far as class 1b goes, that tends to be about a 20% risk of spread to other parts of the body. And then when you look at class 2, that's a, a bit more aggressive, so over 50% and up to about 70% risk of spread to other parts of the body. But there are a couple of caveats with this that um, that have been published on in a number of um, different articles. And I think one is looking at the largest basal diameter. So basically, if you have A very, very small class two tumor, even though the numbers say overall there might be a 70% risk of spread, the actual risk is likely much lower. Um, And so, if you have a class 1A or class 1B lesion that does have a very, very large, um, uh, largest basal diameter, then it is possible that the risk of spread might be a little bit higher. Uh, than what it shows in the overall data. So the cutoff usually is somewhere around 12 millimeters, but that is one important caveat. And then the second caveat, which you know we briefly mentioned, and, and we'll probably talk about more, is Prame. Um and, and that kind of plays a role in the percentages and the risk of metastasis as well.
0: Okay. Um, was there another, I know the basal diameter, well, let's just, let's just break down what are, what are the pieces of our tumors? Um, we've got the basal diameter, which I'm pretty sure that means the bottom diameter, right? So like if we're, if we're looking at like a, like a bubble that's on the the surface of a table, maybe the basal diameter is what's touching the surface of the table. Correct.
1: That is correct. Okay.
0: So then the thickness is how far up does the bubble go? That is correct. Or, you know, i say bubble it's usually not a bubble shape exactly for everyone but you know for for the terms of this um so that thickness does that thickness play a role in any of the studies that we've seen um as far as say like a class two tumor that's a really thin tumor versus a class one tumor that's a really thick tumor
1: yeah, that's a fantastic question. In a lot of the studies, it does not necessarily seem like thickness, independent of other characteristics, plays a role. Although there are a couple of retrospective studies that show that the thicker the tumor, the more likely there is for metastasis. But I think you know, with the COO two results coming out soon, um, we will kind of get a little bit more information about that. But it seems like largest basal diameter. Um, plays the most significant independent role, as in, gotcha. in addition to the classes, the largest basal diameter also gives you additional information, whereas thickness tends not to give you additional information on its own, separate from the classes or mm. largest. Basal okay.
0: Diameter. So when all the factors are combined, that basal diameter is. Um or sorry, when all the factors are combined, the thickness is, is a role. It plays a role. But when the factors are kind of separated into categories, then that basal diameter can in and of itself indicate yes or no to the spread. OK, gotcha. OK, um, let's talk a little more about prame. I know we've kind of talked briefly about it, but what is the difference when somebody sees on their Castle test that it says prame positive or prame negative, regardless of class A or B um, as in the one or class you know, one or two? What does that mean um, and mm-hmm. why does that exist?
1: Yeah. So PREM is an antigen that is, it stands for preferentially expressed um, in melanoma. And so this is something that is only found in normal tissues in the testes and a couple of other locations. And when it is seen in tumors, we know that those tumors have a more aggressive profile and are more likely to spread. And so looking at some of the um, older data that we have with patients with melanoma, we know that if you have a class two tumor that is PRAME positive, you are more likely to have spread or metastasis and it also tends to happen earlier. When we look at class one patients that are praying positive, it seems like most class one patients that are prime negative really don't have much spread. And that's almost regardless of class 1A or class 1B. But once you have class one tumor that is Prane positive, you are more likely to have metastasis. And if we compare the class one Prane positive versus the class two Prane um, positive, you know there is a little bit of a difference in those patients. Um, the class ones tend to be a little bit younger. They have a less likelihood of tumors going to the liver and the spread seems to be delayed compared to the class two patients. So pream gives us a lot of information and really helps us understand in more detail, if you have class 1, A, B, or class 2 tumors, what the risk of spread is.
0: Okay. So one of the pushbacks that we get to the biopsy from various different doctors or even from patients themselves and often from insurance, unfortunately, is that having the physical biopsy of the eye tumor done does not end, um, it does not typically yield any kind of care for your eye, right? Because we're looking at prognostic testing. We're looking at the possibility of metastatic spread. And by definition, metastatic means outside of the primary tumor location, which means not in the eye. So as an eye doctor, why why is this important information for you to have to give to your patient?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the most important reason for us is that even though we're eye doctors, we are thinking about this as oncologists, and our goal is to take the best care of the patient overall, not just their eye. So I agree completely that this information is not really going to change how we approach treating the eye, because that decision is already made, whether it be radiation or a nucleation um, or any other treatment. But the reality is that this is the prime opportunity that we have to get the information about the tumor so we can kind of track things for the future, so we know how often the patient can get could should get scans of the rest of their body. So we know what the risk is of spread to other parts of the body and for future indications with adjuvant therapy. So the possibility of reducing the risk of metastasis um, before it develops and also potentially down the road, as we get more information, we may open different clinical trials for specific treatment options. And we would really want to focus on the patients that have the highest risk of spread in that scenario. And so, you know, the caveat to this is We cannot get accurate readings for this biopsy once a patient has been radiated. And so once radiation treatment is done, the window for getting the biopsy information has passed. And so that's why it's so important to get it up front. And that's why us as ophthalmologists, we're the ones that do the biopsy, but we also are the ones that are participating in the care at the time where we can do the biopsy because this will yield results for many years to come. I, I do know, you know you had kind of mentioned that some people say, well, what's the value of, of doing this biopsy? Because perhaps there's not a lot of adjuvant trials right now. Perhaps we can't offer patients something to reduce the risk of metastasis right now. That may be true at this exact moment. There's not um, currently a clinical trial open to reduce the risk. However, Down the road, if we get more information, um, we would really want to have, we would want to know which patients would qualify for these studies. And by not having a biopsy, you may miss the window or the opportunity for stuff that is being developed and will come to market and will be available in clinical trials down the road.
0: I love what you said about how you're you're approaching this as the doctor as the doctor of the whole patient, right? Like, yes, you are primarily an eye doctor, but your patient is a whole person. And so your job as a doctor is to make sure that the patient has the best care, the best follow-up care. And you're thinking about this, not only um, from a whole patient perspective, but also from an oncology perspective. And from an oncologist perspective, you know, cancer can spread. And so we need to know how often do we need to watch, right? How often do we need to watch for this to come back? And at what point, you know, is the patient kind of considered a little more safe or not, you know, not as high of risk. Um, so speaking as, you know, an ophthalmologist, an ocular oncologist, someone who does this test, treats the eye, um, what is, what does this look like for you or what, what would be maybe the ideal situation, right? For a patient who say is a class two, they get that, that biopsy result and you're looking to make sure that they have informed follow-up care and, um, Are you primarily the doctor who covers those scans and make sure that those happen? Or do you send those patients when possible to a medical oncologist? And like what informs that decision?
1: Exactly. So that's another fantastic question. And I think anyone who in my clinic has a high risk of metastasis, whether it be a class two frame positive or negative, or a class one frame positive lesion, especially if it has large um, basal dimensions. I work very closely with our medical oncologists at the University of Miami and the Sylvester Cancer Center, and we basically refer them right away. Because what I want to happen is I want a medical oncologist to talk to the patient from the beginning, to let them know the importance of the scans, why we're getting the scans, to also talk to them potentially about treatment options, and, you know, this is an exciting time to be an ocular oncologist that treats patients with uveal melanoma because we know that tibentafusp is a new um, medication or um that was recently FDA approved. It's the first FDA approved medication to treat metastatic uveal melanoma. And so. Um, Patients that would benefit from this treatment have a specific HLA type, so a specific uh, marker in the blood. And so that's another reason I like to get patients in to see our medical oncologist, because we will often analyze for that marker early on. So if the patient were to develop metastasis, we already have this information and we would be able to kind of initiate treatment Uh, right away as opposed to kind of waiting for that test. So I think that's how we tend to approach patients who have a high risk of spread by getting them into the medical oncologist right away uh, so their imaging can be done and deeper conversations can be had. I also know that as the ophthalmologist, I get patients all the time that ask, well, what do I do with this information? And if I found out, if I find out that I have a high risk tumor, you know, how scared am I going to be? How much is this going to affect my life? How much is anxiety um, going to uh, kind of affect me? And maybe it would be better for me not to know. And it's actually interesting. Obviously, every person is an individual and is different, but we did look at this um, with the team from Castle Biosciences and some of the people from the Melanoma Research Foundation. And it actually shows that the vast majority of people are happy that they got their test done. If they had a low risk of spread, they felt that Um, It gave them some relief uh, from anxiety and a high risk of spread. They also felt that it was a valuable test because it helped them understand and feel like they were playing more of a role in their treatment. They were able to participate in the interactions with the oncologist. They were able to kind of think about their life and perspective. and, And patients actually ended up doing very, very well emotionally with this information overall. However, if patients are struggling in this kind of scenario, we also utilize the resources at our cancer center uh, where we will have a psychologist, psychiatrist, nutrition, acupuncture, water therapy, and various other options for patients who are struggling with the diagnosis um, and, and with uh, the class results and with the prognostication information. So I think that's really valuable too, as you were mentioning, kind of taking care of the whole patient. It's not just treating the lesion in the eye. It's not just monitoring the tumor. It's also trying to think about the anxiety that comes from this and, and the challenges that, come, that, that go with that as well.
0: Well, I think that's so valuable. And I feel like we might have talked a little bit about the mental health aspect of this in previous discussions, but it, it is very much worth revisiting. Um, and I'm not sure how much of a, an awareness you have of like kind of some of the patient things going on in our community, but but we've definitely had a, a few heavy hit losses um, the last few months, especially just like on the Facebook community and just the online community has felt those losses really, really heavily um, of Clay and of Dustin and uh, various other people, like just kind of, you know, rapid fire dominoes. And it just feels, it feels very, um, well, yeah, like it's a very triggering, um, anxiety ridden kind of a a thing to watch people that, you know, or people that you've interacted with online who were doing well or. you know, seemed like they were, and then suddenly they're not. Um, so I think that like, like you said, I think it's so important to pay attention to those kinds of things. And as a patient too, or as a caregiver, you know, pay attention to your person that you're taking care of and, and watch for those signs that they're struggling emotionally so that, you know, you can talk to their doctor and ask for those resources. Cause, um, I think that it's amazing. And I wish that every office would do this where they would look for that and they would plan for that. Um, And I think, honestly, I I feel like it probably should just be a general assumption in cancer that if you have a cancer diagnosis, you're probably going to struggle emotionally and mentally on some capacity, and you need to have that available support made known to you. Um, so I love that you guys make that accessible and you make that a priority. Um, this is kind of switching gears a little bit, but, um, let's just say the patient is, um, having a biopsy done. And there's, there's some information. I think I've seen this, maybe it was a presentation from Dr. Harbor himself, um, or, you know, people see different things online and they hear different things about how the biopsy is taken. We know it's the fine needle biopsy. Um, but there's, there's say, I don't know, a basal diameter of 15 and a thickness of 12. Like, you know, there's a pretty big surface area and we've got one tiny prick of this needle. So how do you know, that it's going to be accurate. I know you, I think you mentioned like a 95% accuracy, uh, but what happens if it's wrong and what's, what's kind of like, what does that margin of error look like, or can it look like in that biopsy?
1: Yeah. So I think that's a a fantastic question as well. And I think this is something um, that, If you talk to different people, you may end up hearing different things. So basically, we do know that when you have large tumors, there are some parts of the tumor that can look old and not very aggressive, and there are other parts of the tumor that may look more aggressive. And so there's a question as to whether or not there's a different kind of DNA or RNA or mutational burden in different parts of the tumor, and how do you know um, whether or not your single biopsy is representative of the whole tumor? or let's say you even did two biopsies in two locations and you got different information, how do you know what's most accurate? So there was a study that was done um, by Dr. Jim Augsburger who biopsied tumors multiple times and sent them off. And it showed that nine out of 80 patients had um, a different result between um, the two biopsies. And so I think And then we've also seen on some pathology studies that there have been different types of cells in the melanoma, some less aggressive and some more aggressive in areas. And so that leads us to wonder whether or not we're getting the accurate information. And so I think there's a couple of ways that we approach this. When we're doing the biopsy, we try to target the most aggressive looking portion of the tumor. So if there is a small chance of heterogeneity or differences in the tumor, we try to get the area that's most aggressive or most likely to have um, kind of the aggressive information. Then on top of that, there are additional tests that are also being run by castle these days. In addition to the class um, stratification and praying testing, there is next generation sequencing looking for mutations. And so this basically helps us number one, confirm that it is a melanoma, but number two, if we see a mutation, of BAT1, we know that tends to be a more aggressive mutation. And so that gives us additional information um, to kind of help us sort through um, if there are differences in the biopsy results. In general, uh, we think that as a tumor um becomes more aggressive those cells kind of take over more and more of the tumor and so most of the time somewhere around 90 percent of the time uh, you are getting the accurate information of the tumor perhaps more than that and i think this is kind of the best information that we have right now and so as we learn a little bit more with the kube 2 information and others we can kind of update on that but it seems like the biopsy the vast majority of the time is very very accurate um, in, in giving us the prognostic information.
0: Okay. I feel like that helps. And that, I feel like that helps explain to like some of those, those different, um, studies I think that Dr. Harbour has presented on in some online online forums and things where he's talked about the various different kind of makeup of the tumor and how it's not just this homogenous thing. Like it has different elements and different um, DNA makeups. But I think it was um, Dr. Scott Walter, who you I'm sure you know him, <laughs> uh, but he he said something along the lines of that next generation sequencing is like a spell check. It's like, okay, if we have a class 2A or a class two prime positive and then we also see BAP1, um, GNAQ11, like some of these other very classic uh, mutations, then that's kind of our our confirmation that we got the right information Um, or that, you know, that we have the best information to work with, basically. Um, Obviously, the preferenced or the preferential kind of circumstance here is that even if you have all those mutations, that you still end up not metastasizing. That'd be great, right? Like we all want that for every single one of the patients that gets a class two diagnosis, but for the ones that it does spread, what's the value, as you know, as an oncologist, from an oncologist perspective, what's the value of finding that metastasis early as a result of those scans happening every three months or every six months due to scan protocols? Um, what's the benefit to you as the doctor treating the patient?
1: Yeah. So I think that's a also another really valuable point. I think, uh, obviously, we already mentioned that Tabentafospa or is is currently available um, for treatment. So obviously, that's one characteristic. But also, depending on where disease has spread, there are a number of other treatment options that could be available. If you have a small, single metastasis, Sometimes surgery is an option to remove that lesion, and sometimes that can actually be curative. Sometimes there are liver-directed therapies um, that can be done. And so the earlier you catch disease, the smaller the tumor is, there may be some benefit um, in in some patients for that. And I think we will learn even more about this over time as we um, kind of get more information with Tabentifusp and potentially other medications that seem to be doing pretty well in clinical trials right now,
0: Yeah, of course, for sure. Um, you mentioned the BAP1. So this was kind of a confusing point for me because I, I have now like, as most of, I think you know this and most of the community, know, like I had metastatic spread to my liver, um, that was treated surgically. And obviously the biopsy was performed on whatever small pieces they could, you know, use, um, but my eye, when I looked back at my Castle test for my eye, I didn't have that next generation sequencing. I don't think it was available at the time that I was diagnosed. I think it came out like six months after. And um, regardless, it didn't happen, even if it was available. And so some patients have, you know, class 1A or 2, um, let's just say class 2. Let's just use class 2 because that's a pretty, that's a pretty like blanket. You're going to have some mutations, sure. Um So class two, prime positive BAP1 mutation. There's some people in the community who have kind of a a predisposition due to the BAP1 um, to other cancers. So what's the difference between the BAP1 and the eye and the BAP1 test that is part of a blood test that your oncologist, your medical oncologist will do or can do to kind of evaluate your risk of other cancers?
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, I want to address the first Uh, comment you made um, about the next generation sequencing and availability. You are correct um, that this is a more recent test in terms of being offered with the rest of um, the decision uh, DXUM Um, biopsy information. However, for some patients, especially if they've been biopsied over the last few years, there may be some residual sample that's available where those next-generation sequencing um, analyses can be run to look at the mutational burden. Um, And so that's something that may be worth discussing um, with your treating physician because that's something that could uh, potentially uh, be helpful. Uh, Separate from that, um, in terms of Sorry, can you remind me the second part of the
0: question? So there are patients who have BAP1 mutations in their tumor, Ah, but who don't have a BAP1 mutation in their blood. So, you know, a blood test from the medical oncologist. So I don't have the BAP1 mutation in my blood, but it is in my tumor. So that's, that's, um, I guess to help kind of, let's help make sure that I say it correctly. And then you correct me. I understand it as the blood test is something that evaluates familial spread possibility and also your risk for other cancers, but the eye test that looks at, okay, the eye or even the liver cancer, like if you have a liver tumor or a lung cancer, um, that shows up a lung metastasis, that, 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 BAP1 is kind of the, that's the way to confirm it's uveal melanoma.
1: Um, so, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point and a really good distinction. So if you have a BAP1 mutation in the tumor itself, that indicates that you're more likely to have spread. Um, To other parts of the body, I agree with you on that. If you, but but the tumor is localized, the BAT1 mutation is localized just to the tumor. If you have a BAT1 mutation elsewhere in your body, that is a familial form uh, uh, of the mutation, and that is seen in about five percent of people who have uveal melanoma usually it's people that have a family history of various types of cancer so um, skin melanoma uveal melanoma um, renal cell carcinoma um, and different types of lung cancer as well especially mesothelioma and so if there's a person that has a family history of I not only ask if people have had melanoma or these cancers, but I also ask if anyone in the family has had an eye removed, because sometimes people don't know that history, but having an eye removed can be an indication of a melanoma in the family. If a patient is very young, so we know that most people that are diagnosed with this are in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, but there are people that are younger um, that can have this condition. And so if people are younger, um, then I would also consider Um, testing for BAP1 uh, because it tends to be something, because the person doesn't fit what we normally see. And so you test for BAP1 not only to um, think about their risk of passing it on to their children and kind of giving counseling to the family members, but also to make sure that we're surveilling the rest of the body for those other types of cancers, which can pop up as well. So you did an excellent job describing the, the difference.
0: Okay. No, I feel like that was just a good distinction. And that was something that has come up as far as prognostic testing, like, well, what does this information mean? Um, So thank you for explaining that. Um, I think just to close, I have two other points that I wanted to make or that I want us to kind of cover. And one of them is just, can we reiterate what, uh, as far as you understand right now, what is the cost to the patients for this test? Um, specifically, we know for the Castle test. So let's just talk in terms of the Castle test, because um, a lot of times that can be a factor for patients that they're uninsured or they don't have good insurance or even their insurance comes back and says, no, we won't cover this test. Um, what has been your experience for patients who that happens to?
1: Yeah. So um, the first thing that happens is Castle will always charge the insurance um, for this test. And if the insurance does not authorize uh, approval, then the physician works with Castle to write a letter of appeal, and then Castle will automatically appeal the ruling. And that kind of goes back and forth. And I know this is really important because during this time, patients are getting information about the bill, which can be somewhat expensive. And without knowing that this is going on in the background, patients can be concerned, sometimes freak out about the expense and the cost. In my experience though, If the insurance company denies approval and also denies um, the the attempt to overturn um, the denial, then patient then Castle usually just covers the cost themselves and the cost does not get transmitted to the patients. And so I think that is something that has been really fantastic on the part of Castle to allow patients access to this really, really important information so that they're not stuck paying thousands of dollars for this kind of test if their uh, insurance company doesn't approve it. And I think on the physician side, from an advocacy standpoint, we are working pretty hard uh, for, to, to try and express the importance of this so insurance companies will get on board and authorize and approve this. Uh, but even if they don't, CASEL has been working to make sure the patients are not stuck with this bill.
0: No, I think that's so important. Um, That can be so relieving to hear because I, I mean, I remember having that experience of seeing it come in the mail and not knowing what was happening behind the scenes. And I was so alarmed. I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) what is this? Um, So thank you for explaining that. I feel like hopefully that will, hopefully that will alleviate um, concerns for anyone. So the, um, we had a couple questions come in that I want to get to in just a couple minutes, but um, I guess one of the the last things I want to ask to ask you is, you know, what, what would you suggest to a patient who their doctor, um, their treating physician, maybe a retina surgeon, or um, maybe they're just not as familiar, but they're, they know what to do to treat ocular melanoma. Um, What happens or what should happen for the patient who they're told you shouldn't get a biopsy? Um, What are maybe the reasons that as a doctor, you would say, this is a good reason, or that you would say, get a second opinion.
1: Yeah. So The vast majority of patients that I see, uh, I would recommend a biopsy. If there is a very, very small lesion, so if the lesion is less than two millimeters, let's say, especially if it's in a sensitive area for vision. So if it's in the macula and it's very, very small, uh, a physician might say, we can do a biopsy, but number one, the yield is gonna be lower. So the chances of us getting enough helpful information from that biopsy may be lower. And by doing the needle biopsy, because it's near the center part of your vision, it may affect your vision. I think that is something that is a reasonable consideration for avoiding a biopsy. There are some people still that will say, well, this biopsy um, result is not going to change what we do for your eye and potentially won't change what we do for the rest of your body because we can look at the size of it or the thickness and say we should get you scanned this often. I think as we now have availability for um, treatments for metastatic uveal melanoma and uh, with the science changing so rapidly, I think that it is definitely worthwhile to have the biopsy so we can have this information for the future. So honestly, outside of really challenging technical situations of the lesion being quite small or being in a quite sensitive area for the vision, I, I think a biopsy is really warranted in most scenarios as long as the patient is on board with it.
0: Okay. I feel like that's a good a good way to explain it. Um... And I think just knowing so many of you guys, as far as the ocular oncologist field, I know you guys are all very tightly knit. You communicate very well together. You collaborate a ton, obviously with the Coug studies and various other different conferences, like you guys know each other. And so if, if someone is treating ocular melanoma and they know what they're doing, like, and they're suggesting not to have the biopsy, it's, it's, I guess what I'm hearing is it's likely with good reason, um, because you guys have enough interaction within, you know, with each other to educate each other and make sure that everyone is kind of up to par.
1: One one point that I would make is, you know, it depends on where you're getting treated. There are going to be people with different opinions. The mm. vast majority of us think that biopsy is appropriate. If for whatever reason you're in a scenario or somebody recommends that you don't get a biopsy and you're concerned about that, there is a large network of ocular oncologists and feel free to reach out um, through you, Danae um, or contact kind of any of us that are ocular oncologists. And we would be happy to either kind of chat with you briefly about things or potentially even, um, see you for a second opinion. Um, just so that way you can feel comfortable. Obviously this is something that you want to move on pretty quickly. And so Mm -hmm. you don't want to delay your treatment, but at the same time, we know that if you don't take advantage of the biopsy at the time of treatment, that window kind of passes. So I do think that's an important decision-making time.
0: Okay. Um, and this is, I didn't think about this until now, but you mentioned the, having the eye removed. I do know that Castle does test the nucleated eyes and obviously if it's a nucleated, there is no question of, can we it or can we not because it's no longer a threat to the patient or the body or the vision. Um, uh, but do you happen to know, is there, um, is it only Castle that biopsy samples can be sent to, or are there other centers that do like a full scale, like slice pieces of the eye to look at everything under a microscope? Um, because I know I was a little confused. My eye went to UCLA first before it went to Castle, and I was like, what?
1: <laughs> yeah. So. The pathologist, in order to analyze the tumor, requires a pathologist, usually that's trained in ocular pathology. And so there are very few of these across the U.S. We're obviously fortunate in Miami to have one, but sometimes people, in order to have the melanoma assessed, will send it to a center that has a pathologist that's comfortable um, reviewing ocular tumor samples. Um, As you mentioned, CASEL will take Tissue from after enucleations, and so you can have specimens on slides and they can evaluate that as well. There are other companies that do evaluation for prognostication. I know Impact Genetics looks at um, DNA mutations, so looking at chromosome uh, 1, 3, 6, and 8, with 3 being the most important one, um, and they can look at and evaluate samples post enucleation as well.
0: Okay. That's good information for sure because I know some people do end up with a nucleation for one reason or another. Um okay, so on to our final questions and then we will wrap up. So one of the questions is do we have a test yet or do you hope as an ocular oncologist that there will be one soon to be able to like tell, you know, are, are we predisposed or maybe you know for our generations below us, for those of us diagnosed younger, are there tests in the works or hopeful for diagnosing um, the predisposition to ocular melanoma to begin with.
1: Uh, so yes, there is, um, for the familial type of, uh, melanoma, there's definitely a blood test and you can also get a saliva test. Um, There's a number of companies that do that and they can actually mail the kit to you. You can mail it back and get the results. And so, um, you know, we do offer that to many of our patients. If it's outside of the familial scenario in terms of a patient um, that has, you know, no family history and no eye issues, we don't have something available right now. And I think it'll be a little challenging for us to determine who's most likely to get uveal melanoma without any of those other Mm -hmm. um, predisposing factors.
0: So if you're the first generation diagnosed person in your family, would that then merit your, you know, your, your immediate children or, you know, grandchildren, if you have grandchildren, like then having any kind of a familial test done? Um, Or do you think that that's not necessary? Unless there's a a multiple time of it happening in a family.
1: Yeah. I think if you're a more typical patient with uveal melanoma, if you're in your mid-60s, if you have light-colored hair, light-colored eyes, have freckles, you're more likely to be someone that develops UVO melanoma, and if you have no family history, then I think it's reasonable to not uh, pursue testing. However, if you're younger or less likely to have uh, melanoma for other reasons, or if you're just really concerned and you want to make sure that this is not a risk for family members. I think the best thing to do initially is to have yourself tested first. And if you're negative, then you don't need to pursue anything for any of mm. your additional family members. Um, and if it does come back positive, then it, then it will be worth a conversation with other family.
0: So the tests that can be done that, you know, for a I guess, basically saying, you know, obviously, it doesn't help us other than to know, do we need to have our family tested? But if I were to do that test, um, like, do you have a list of a couple, you know, a couple of those names of companies that you would list off that people could bring to their doctor if they wanted to have that test done?
1: Um, yeah. So I think my retina tracker does it in does it. Um, and I think there are a number of other ones that are smaller companies that do it as well. Those two, I know well, because they do a lot of genetic testing for other retinal conditions. Um, and so those are the ones that I use most frequently, but there are a number of other tests.
0: All right. Well, I just feel like that's a good, that's a good starting place for if people do want to have that. And is that a test that an ocular oncologist orders, or is that one that a medical oncologist can order?
1: Both can order it. In fact, okay. um, I have my team uh, send the kits out to patients' houses if they want this testing done or if they have, uh, you know, if they're quite a young patient, et cetera. So um, I do order it for some of my patients as well.
0: Okay. And then the last question is Do we have um, any kind of a test or, you know, various tests that are successful in um, diagnosing the circulating tumors, like tumor cells? Uh, I think it's the circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells. Um, are there blood tests that are conclusive or you know consistent, I guess is the better word, in diagnosing that?
1: Yeah, so this is a question basically about liquid biopsy. So determining if we're able to assess um, cells from the tumor that have broken off the tumor and they could be circulating either in the eye, in the anterior chamber, um, or in the blood. And so I think this is actually the early days of liquid biopsy for uveal melanoma. And I know a couple of centers are investigating this and have shown that you can get some circulating tumor DNA um, in the blood, especially immediately after radiation. There's been some information in the vitreous, and I think you know there are places that are looking in the anterior chamber as well. As of right now, based on uveal melanoma itself, the fact that it's in the choroid, less likely to go to the vitreous and other areas. I think, you know, we still don't have enough information to say definitively that this testing should be um, done. But I think over the next few years, we are going to really learn a lot more about this. So this is one of those areas that we're developing uh, a lot of information on. So kind of stay tuned.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end for the day is generally, you know, we've got a lot to work with. Um, the biopsy is important and it's important information and valuable to you. So if you can get it great, if you didn't get it, move forward and use the information you can get moving forward. Um, and just stay tuned for the results of the COOP 2 study as well as our Ion research, um, and anything else that comes in the next few years. So thank you again for being here with us, Dr. Williams.
1: No, always a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much for having me again. I appreciate it.
0: All right. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.